This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey listeners, Bob here. Just a warning that this episode contains a brief description of racial violence. If you've got kids listening or you would rather not listen to that, you can jump ahead five minutes in the episode. I'm Bob Crawford. This is Founding Son, John Quincy's America. The sky turned an odd bluish green that day in late August 1831. People up and down the Atlantic coast stared at the heavens, wondering what it all meant. One Virginia preacher had been expecting this sign from God. He began having sort of visions, apocalyptic visions, which commanded him to to sort of bring about transformational apocalyptic change. Matthew Karp is a professor of history at Princeton University and author of This Vast Southern Empire, Slaveholders at the Helm of American Foreign Policy. He says the preacher had been seeing visions for years, recording them in his diary. Things like, While laboring in the field, I discovered drops of blood on the corn, representing the figures I'd seen before in the heavens. The eerie blue-green sky was the final sign that the time had come. Time for the preacher to set his plan in motion. And when the last strands of the fantastical colors faded from the night sky, he got to work. He gathered six other men and crept through the swamps of Southampton County, Virginia, stealing horses 
knives, hatchets, and axes. Within two days, a group of more than 70 had joined the preacher's movement. They went house to house, slaughtering every white enslaver they came across, freeing the enslaved people as they went. Nat Turner's rebellion had begun. By the end of the rebellion, Nat Turner and the other enslaved African Americans who joined him had killed some 60 white people, including women and children. The backlash was immediate and severe. A mob of 3,000 white people tracked down the rebels just outside of the town of Jerusalem. The one thing I want to say about Nat Turner is not only did they kill him, they mutilated his body. Mutilated it. Mary Elliott is curator of American slavery at the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. So it's like this idea that if he has one hand attached to one arm attached to his body, somehow it's going to rise up and, you know, kill more white people and, and end slavery in the nation. And we have to tear that body up so that it doesn't come back and, and fight another day. In the hysteria that followed Nat Turner's rebellion, paranoia seized the South. White Southerners murdered dozens of black men and women across the region most having no connection to the rebellion. Enslavers had long feared violent uprisings by the people they enslaved. And now, their fears had come true. Bear in mind that the Nat Turner Uprising was one of a series of events. James Traub is the author of the biography, John Quincy Adams' Militant Spirit. And you have to go all the way back to Haiti's rebellion against the French. This was a slave rebellion which had succeeded against the world's greatest nation and driven them out. And so people were terrified. Then there's the Denmark Vesey uprising in Charleston in 1822. So all of these things say to the South, our institution is under attack. A few months after Nat Turner's uprising, 64-year-old John Quincy Adams was sworn into office as a member of the House of Representatives. Adams reluctantly ran for Congress to fix roads, build schools, and protect manufacturing jobs for his New England constituents. But he would soon see all of his goals upended by the intense response to these slave rebellions and be forced to either come out fully against slavery or accept its evils. Chapter 3, Our Federal Union. It must be preserved. In the years leading up to Nat Turner's rebellion, the abolitionist movement was gaining momentum. It was a very gradualist and moderate movement until the 1830s. Richard Newman is a professor of history at Rochester Institute of Technology. He says black abolitionists like David Walker led a new charge for abolition going into the 1820s and 30s. David Walker is without a doubt the most important abolitionist figure before Frederick Douglass in the coming of the Civil War era because he rips apart 
the anti-slavery notion that you can be a gradual abolitionist and still make an impact on the slavery issue in the United States. Walker's message was simple. The only remedy for slavery, immediate abolition and full equality for African-Americans. The way that I discuss his importance is that he represents all of those African-American musicians in the 1940s and 50s and 60s who influenced all of those white rock and rollers, you know, including Elvis Presley. You can't look at the rise of rock and roll without looking at black musicians. You can't look at the rise of all these white abolitionist politicians and activists in the 1830s and 40s without looking at the influence of David Walker. The momentum of the abolitionist movement and the growing frequency of slave rebellions set off a frenzy of political action in the South. Southern enslavers took the reins of state and local governments, writing oppressive laws to prevent the education, movement, or assembly of enslaved people. In the North, the pendulum swung even further in the opposite direction. These draconian Southern laws pushed more Northerners from the sidelines and into the fight against slavery. By the 1830s, the anti-slavery movement has taken a, a new turn. It's become something of a mass movement. That's Sean Woodlentz, professor of history at Princeton University and author of The Rise of American Democracy, Jefferson to Lincoln. One of the things that it undertakes is a series of petitions to flood the Congress with petitions. Anti-slavery petitions poured into Congress. I can imagine Southern lawmakers using them as fuel for the fireplace or to light a cigar. Enter John Quincy Adams, stage left. His desk is likely covered in anti-slavery petitions on his first day in office. To be clear, he hated slavery, but he didn't consider himself an abolitionist. And he didn't believe Congress had the power to abolish slavery. Still, it didn't matter to Adams what was in the petitions. He saw it as his duty to give voice to them on the House floor, whether he agreed with them or not. So, during his first session, John Quincy cleared his throat, throat) stood up from his desk, and read one abolitionist petition after another. I presented 15 petitions signed numerously by citizens of Pennsylvania, praying for the abolition of slavery and the slave trade in the District of Columbia. I moved that one of the petitions presented by me be read. They being all the same tenor and very short, it was accordingly read. I made very few remarks, chiefly to declare that I should not support the part of the petition which prayed for the abolition of slavery in the District of Columbia. John Quincy soon found that slavery permeated every nook and cranny of the capital. Southern lawmakers seeking every opportunity to solidify the institution into the bedrock of the republic. Adams was chair of the Committee on Manufacturers. While manufacturing might not sound like an overtly political issue, it was actually at the heart of one of the day's biggest issues something that deeply divided Northern and Southern lawmakers, tariffs. It was the the one place that the federal government made its money. It didn't have an income tax to to work off of. It made its money off of tariffs. Just like today, tariffs protect American manufacturers from being undersold by foreign goods. But most of this manufacturing was done in Northern cities. So tariffs helped create jobs for Northerners but made foreign imports more expensive for Southerners. 
However, Sean Wilentz says the cost of goods wasn't really the issue. But it was made into a big deal politically. That was a cover. The tariff issue was always kind of a cover for the issue of slavery. President Jackson was in favor of tariffs. He saw them as a way to bring in money and reduce the federal debt, one of his campaign promises. John Quincy also supported tariffs. It was the one issue that cut through the bitterness Adams felt for Jackson and vice versa. But it created new enemies. Everybody's complicated, but John C. Calhoun is, you know, about as evil as it gets in American politics. John C. Calhoun was not only Andrew Jackson's vice president, he was also John Quincy's vice president. Always a bridesmaid, never a bride. Am I right? Calhoun and John Quincy had been colleagues in the 1820s, each holding a high office in President James Monroe's administration. It begins politics actually very close friends in the cabinet with John Quincy Adams. Adams is the Secretary of State. He's the Secretary of War under Monroe, and uh, they like each other. They respect each other. Back then, Adams and Calhoun had pretty similar politics. They were both nationalists. They believed in the federal government taking an active role in developing the country at every level, economically, even culturally, although Adams is more of a culturalist. But as the 1820s dragged on, Calhoun started rethinking his support for federal authority. Tariffs were wildly unpopular in his home state of South Carolina. They were seen as more than just a tax on imports. They were a blatant power grab by the federal government and northern states. Calhoun, in the 1820s, shifts away from his nationalist position to become much more of a southern sectionalist and then eventually becoming the great defender of slavery. It's sort of a metaphor for the, what, what happens to the country. One area of the country has become much more devoted to slavery, the South, and the North becomes much more anti-slavery. John C. Calhoun and Southern lawmakers championed states' rights, a battle over where power should lie that was as old as the Constitution, with the states or with the federal government. And tariffs became the centerpiece of that power struggle. South Carolina then holds a political convention, which is presided over by John Calhoun, uh, the vice president. And they declare that they will not honor the tariff. I want to pause here because this is important. Southern politicians have this aha moment. They say, we don't have to honor the tariff. States have the power of nullification. The word nullification was used to mean the right of a state to supersede federal law with state law. And the issue arose uh, during Adams's presidency because a constant source of political conflict at that time was the passing of tariffs. Because a tariff by its nature helps some people and hurts other people. In theory, nullification gave states the ability to say, no, we don't like that federal law. We're not going to follow it. It's null and void. That's very important when we come to the Civil War because the premise of nullification is that the Constitution is not a pact among voters. It's a pact among states. You've probably heard the phrase constitutional crisis. That's pretty much what this was. I mean, 
what power do the Constitution and the federal government have if states don't listen? It's like if my son could nullify my no screens at the dinner table rule. Who's the boss in that situation? The idea of nullification swept like wildfire through the South. President Jackson was not a fan. See, he was a Southerner and a big supporter of states' rights, but he was also President of the United States. He was the head of the federal government, charged with preserving the Union and protecting the Constitution. So all this nullification nonsense, he wasn't having it. And that exposed a rift between Jackson and his vice president, Calhoun. A bitterness simmered silently between the two. And like any couple with unresolved issues, they tend to boil over at the worst possible and most public moment. Welcome to the Jefferson Day Dinner, 1830. Polished stemware, crystal goblets, fancy attire. It's a regular who's who of Washington's elite political players. And this year's noted guests, President Andrew Jackson and his vice president, John C. Calhoun. The celebration was dominated by Calhoun's friends, a bunch of people who were sympathetic to the Southern rights point of view. During these dinners, every man in the room would stand up and make a toast to this or to that. And then they'd give more toasts. By some accounts, more than 100 toasts could be given at one of these dinners. They'd get very drunk slowly because they'd take all these toasts, and every time they did a toast, they'd knock something back, usually something very stiff. President Jackson could probably feel the tension in the room. His fervent opposition to nullification put him at odds with almost everyone there. Hateful eyes likely weighed heavily on him, like daggers being sharpened all around. And Jackson is loaded for bear. He's going to be asked to give a toast, and he has a toast already, and has a toast that he knows he's going to sing at John C. Calhoun. Jackson raised his glass, sneered over at his vice president. He's standing tall. He's looking right at him. There's no question of what he's doing. He's staring Calhoun down. Jackson let out a hint of a grin and let it rip. Our federal union, it must be preserved. The words hit Calhoun like a slap in the face. And Calhoun is reported to have been very flustered at this. He just can't believe what just happened. Not to be outdone, Calhoun immediately pushes back his chair and rises to his feet, raises his glass high in the air, locks eyes with Jackson, and bellows for the crowd. The Union, next to our liberty, the most dear. May we all remember that it can only be preserved by respecting the rights of the states and distributing equally the benefit and burden of the Union. If they had microphones in 1830, Calhoun would have dropped his. The crowd of Calhoun cronies burst into applause. Missouri Senator and Jackson ally Thomas Hart Benton was at the dinner. He told a friend later that the whole thing was a setup. It was prepared for the express purpose of inaugurating the treasonable doctrine of nullification. Following the notorious Jefferson Day dinner, support for nullification and defiance of federal law only grew stronger in the South. Just two years later, in 1832, 
Calhoun put nullification to the test. He pushed his state of South Carolina to ignore the federal tariff. And Jackson will have none of it. Jackson threatens uh, to send the, the army down. I mean, he's going to take military action to make sure that the tariff is duly collected and the ports of South Carolina above all Charleston. Now Calhoun was engaged in a duel of sorts with Jackson. But this time, Jackson was armed with the U.S. military, not a pistol. Jackson issued a proclamation to the state of South Carolina in late 1832. You are free members of a flourishing and happy union. There is no settled design to oppress you. The power to annul a law of the United States assumed by one state is incompatible with the existence of the Union, contradicted expressly by the letter of the Constitution, unauthorized by its spirit, inconsistent with every principle on which it was founded, and destructive of the great object for which it was formed. Jackson made crystal clear to the South Carolinians the repercussions of their actions. Disunion by armed force is treason. Shortly after Jackson's proclamation, John Quincy Adams took to the House floor. Waving a copy of the Constitution above his head, he said, The South has a great protected interest. Their looms and factories have no representative in Congress. Why should not they reason as South Carolina does? Why shouldn't Massachusetts nullify whatever measures it found inimical? Groans and boos erupted from the South Carolina delegation as John Quincy used their words against them. One congressman interrupted, shouting, Adams has thrown a firebrand into the hall. Calhoun could feel the pressure mounting. He had no idea how far Jackson would go in the stalemate and had none of the seasoned veterans' steely resolve. Calhoun, in effect, backs down. He's not a, a radical in all of this. He's more of a moderate, but he is certainly pushing nullification. Jackson had won the duel over nullification, and Calhoun resigned the vice presidency. Nullification is undone, and uh, it's actually an important moment in American political history because it is a premonition of the Civil War. Civil War is not going to be fought over nullification. It's going to be fought over secession, but secession was kind of the ultimate step beyond nullification. The nullification crisis had been averted, but it gave Americans a glimpse at the potential for a much larger conflict to come. Jackson said in May of 1833, The tariff was only a pretext, and disunion and Southern Confederacy the real object. The next pretext will be the slavery question. Jackson, an enslaver, had held the slave powers in check but it was just a matter of time before things got out of control. We'll have more after a break. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello! 
acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. By the mid-1830s, the abolitionist movement became organized. Abolitionist newspapers were spreading. Anti-slavery petitions flooded the U.S. Capitol at a furious pace. At the heart of it all was a white abolitionist named Theodore Weld. Theodore Dwight Weld gains a reputation as not just a great organizer, not just a great speaker, but as someone who within a lot of institutions, educational, religious, can spur anti-slavery debate in really meaningful ways. Weld and other abolitionists created an anti-slavery juggernaut in the 1830s, traveling from town to town, giving lectures and circulating ready-to-sign anti-slavery petitions. Weld is part of an incredible network of anti-slavery activists who've been working on abolitionist petitions. He's got a lot of help from anti-slavery women and other activists. In fact, the majority of the people who sign these petitions are women in the North. The pressure in Congress to do something about these petitions was ratcheting up. But John Quincy Adams was dealing with another issue. In the fall of 1834, Adams received a letter saying that his son, John Adams II, was extremely ill. The author urged John Quincy to come immediately. The news was shocking, but not surprising. Young John was John Quincy and Louise's middle son. Like it did for his older brother George, the Adams name hung like an albatross around his neck. 
to cope with the pressure, he self-medicated with alcohol. Louisa believed if only John and his family came to stay with her, she could save him. She pleaded, I shall be perfectly miserable until I hear that you have left the city, as the health of yourself, your wife, and Fanny make it essential, and the season leaves no time for deliberation. Desperate, she recommended he sell her silver breadbasket to cover travel expenses. Do not hesitate to take this step, as they are my own, and if they can prove serviceable, they will yield me more pleasure and more solid wealth than they ever have since I've owned them. But young John was too sick to travel, so his father came to him. I went to his bedside twice, saw and heard him. He had no consciousness of anything on earth. Helpless, John Quincy watched the life fade from his son's body. He bent down and kissed his boy on his sweaty brow. He had outlived another one of his children. I was never like a huge (laughs) John fan. And then when I wrote his death scene, I remember so well. It was one of the most vivid experiences I had writing the biography. I remember writing it and thinking, huh, I feel kind of like hot. And then I just started sobbing. This is Louisa Thomas, staff writer at The New Yorker and author of Louisa, The Extraordinary Life of Mrs. Adams. She says John Quincy and Louisa's life was filled with sorrow and grief. And for all their love and caring, they couldn't help but feel like they had failed their children. These are human beings in some ways that you can never know, but you know, you see them through some sort of window at a distance and and you come to care about them for all their faults and also just see the ways in which the world let them down as it lets down many people and the ways in which they let down each other sometimes too. When Louisa Adams learned of her son's death, she was incapacitated by grief. She crumbled into a deep depression. Her son, Charles Francis, wrote, She lay in a state of stupor for some time, followed by violent and indefinite emotion. I can imagine her at Peacefield, staring out of her window at the yellowwood tree that's still there today. It's one Louisa had planted when her other son, George, had died just five years earlier. It's yellowing leaves floating to the ground in the cool autumn air. It was a reminder of the seasons she had spent without him. Down in Washington, John Quincy grieved as he always had. He threw himself into his work in the House of Representatives. In the waning days of 1835, abolitionist petitions continued to flood the U.S. Capitol. In the 1830s, one faction of abolitionists becomes much more radical and immediate, demands the end of slavery right now, and takes direct action. Abolitionists didn't just send petitions to the Capitol. They started mailing anti-slavery petitions directly to voters in the South. What the South starts to do is intercept the mail and search the mail for any anti-slavery materials and then prevent it from being delivered. Southern politicians seethed as the anti-slavery literature took center stage in Congress. 
So they say, you know, you have to prevent the discussion of abolitionist petitions. When they're brought in, you say, we cannot talk about these. It's an actual congressional mandate. Southern lawmakers tested this new tact on one of Adams's fellow representatives from Massachusetts. When he began to read a petition on the House floor, a congressman from South Carolina stopped him, saying the petition should be rejected out of hand. The lawmaker got flustered, caved into the Southerners' demands, and sat down without reading the petition. John Quincy was furious. He later wrote in his diary, This proposition, which was wholly unexpected to Polk, the speaker, disconcerted him, and he blundered in the tangles of the rules. Southern politicians then took to the House floor for three days, bloviating about why Congress must reject all these anti-slavery petitions. Like listening to your drunken uncle drone on and on about his insane politics at the Thanksgiving dinner table, Adams's irritation built and built and built. And then he had had enough. He sprung from his desk and spoke directly to the Southern delegation. You introduce a resolution that the members of this house shall not speak a word in derogation of the sublime merits of slavery? Well, sir, you begin with suppressing the right of petition. You must next suppress the right of speech in this house. You suppress the right of petition. You suppress the freedom of speech, the freedom of the press, and the freedom of religion. For in the minds of many worthy, honest, and honorable men, fanatics, if you so please to call them, this is a religious question in which they act under what they believe to be a sense of duty to their God. When Theodore Weld read about John Quincy's speech on the House floor, he had a thought. What if Adams could be a voice for the anti-slavery movement in Congress? John Quincy's support for freedom of speech had put him on an ideological collision course with enslavers and made him a hero in the eyes of abolitionists. Adams wanted to stay neutral when it came to slavery, But the ground was shifting all around him. And then war came to the southern border. And it changed everything. On the next episode of Founding Son, I shall never surrender or retreat. I am determined to sustain myself as long as possible and die like a soldier who never forgets what is due to his own honor and that of his country. Victory or death. There's this sense that if Texas isn't annexed, then Great Britain is going to step in or some other European power, and you'll have this big anti-slavery borderland in the Southwest. Founding Son is a curiosity podcast. Brought to you by iHeart Podcasts and School of Humans. For help with this episode, we want to thank James Traub, author of John Quincy Adams' Militant Spirit. Mary Elliott, curator of American slavery at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. Richard Newman, 
professor of history at Rochester Institute of Technology. Louisa Thomas, staff writer at The New Yorker and author of Louisa, The Extraordinary Life of Mrs. Adams. Sean Wilentz, author of The Rise of American Democracy, Jefferson to Lincoln. Matthew Karp, professor of history at Princeton University and author of This Vast Southern Empire, Slaveholders at the Helm of American Foreign Policy. Our lead producer, story editor, and sound designer is James Morrison. Our senior producer is Jessica Metzger. Our production manager is Daisy Church. Fact-checking by Adam Bisno. Jesse Nyswanger mixed and mastered this episode. Executive producers are Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, L.C. Crowley, and Jason English. Original music by me, Bob Crawford. Additional scoring by Blue Dot Sessions. John Quincy Adams is voiced by Patrick Warburton. Andrew Jackson is voiced by Nick Offerman. Louisa Adams is voiced by Gray Delisle. Additional voices in this episode provided by Scott Avitt, Jay Jones, and James Morrison. Show art designed by Darren Schock. Special thanks to John Higgins, Julia Chris Gow, the Massachusetts Historical Society, and the National Park Service. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star rating in your podcast app. You can also check out other Curiosity podcasts to learn about history, pop culture, true crime, and more. This podcast was recorded under a SAG-AFTRA collective bargaining agreement. I'm your host, Bob Crawford. Thanks for listening. humans. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.